According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 12. Today we want to take a look at verses 5 through 7. Proverbs 12, verses 5 through 7, we saw, spent last week in verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. And we learn the aspects there of marriage, either the greatest blessing or the greatest cursing in temporal life, and can go one way or the other, or both, depending from time to time, as as it is. Today, though, we got verses 5, 6, and 7. The thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. And then verse 7, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. And so we've got verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. We're going to take that as, as a unit and uh, put it together for you here in the in the points. Before we get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside our distractions, to humble us under the authority of eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth, thankful for this time, Father. On a Wednesday morning, I thank you for folks that are available, that have work schedules and school schedules that allow them to be here. Father, just thank you for your faithfulness to keep these doors open and the lights on and the bills paid. Thank you for the uh, eternal value of your, of your word. As we assemble together to receive instruction, we are reaping for all eternity. And I thank you for that, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So in the outline, let me skip ahead here to the appropriate slide. which I can do like this. That's kind of cool. So last week we saw in point four, marriage is either the greatest blessing or the greatest cursing, and the details there in verse four. A couple of subpoints A and B. Uh, what is the crown, of course? It's visible. Uh, the visible representation of invisible authority. When it says that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, that communicates, that uh, demonstrates the in a very visible way on display for everyone to observe. If I was wearing a crown today, you would all know it, wouldn't you? All right, because you'd be looking at me, and there it is. It would be front and center, and it would be evident, and it would either be a, a glorious thing or a cheap thing or something in between, and it, it you know it'd be very clear. Right now, as far as my shoes are concerned. Um, you don't know what I'm wearing, or even if I'm wearing. You know, am I wearing shoes or boots or flip-flops or what am I doing? You don't know. Okay? It's not as evident as a crown. See? Now, when you talk about the bones, that's even worse than the shoes, because how internalized is that? See? So bone and joint, joint pain, not externally visible. And uh, so there's the contrast there. See, if the excellent wife is the crown of her husband, it's on display, it's visible, it's self-evident, it's a thing of beauty. But she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. And it's, uh, it's internal, maybe it's not seen, maybe it's hidden, maybe it's unknown, but boy, it hurts. And it is uh, the bone and joint pain that becomes chronic and becomes unbearable. And so 
uh, the points of study there. All right, Pro, uh, not only Proverbs 12, but all these other applications, also Habakkuk 3.16, speaking of uh, uh, pain in the bones. Moving on then to point five, thought, word, and deed. Thought, word, and deed are all manifest in the contrast of the righteous and the wicked. And we have three verses here in the poetry, uh, three verses in the concepts of uh, thought, word, and deed. And really that encompasses everything as far as our experience is concerned and how we operate in uh, the Christian way of life. Our thinking uh, lies behind our speaking and, uh, of course, ultimately our actions. And all of this becomes manifest. All of this becomes on display in in some kind of fruit bearing, either good fruit or bad fruit. But there's fruit that's being born in how we think and what we say and what we do. And uh, it couldn't be more opposite as we contrast the righteous and the wicked. So look at it again, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. And each one has two halves, but we're still dealing with each of these uh, verse by verse. So in verse 5, the thoughts of the righteous, that's on the one hand, they are just, but the counsels, okay, that's a different term, but it's in parallel with thoughts, and we'll discuss the nature of thinking between thoughts and counsels. The thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. So there in verse 5, with the A part and the B part, with both halves of the verse, we have thinking that takes center stage. And uh, the righteous on the one hand, the wicked on the other hand. The, uh, the uprightness or the uh, appropriateness according to the standard uh, on the one hand, and then the deceitful, the, the two-faced, uh, deceptive. Uh, on the other hand. Verse 6, we have an A part and a B part, and everything is all about the verbalization, the, the, uh, the words, the speaking. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. Again, the poetry between the A part and the B part uses different terms. That's common, okay? That's very common. It's not, it, Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry where we stress the rhyming, okay? Uh, it's, it's the concepts that are in parallel, most frequently finding two different words to say the same thing. Uh, so two synonymous terms or two related expressions. So clearly when we have words in 6a and mouth in 6b, they're in parallel. We're talking about speaking, uh, as opposed to anything else you might think of related to the mouth. It's speaking. And the upright, through his speaking, is a blessing, is even a savior. You ever think about that? The idea of delivery, the idea of salvation, the concept that's here. And uh, not uh, coincidental, in my mind, of course, the Bible uses this a lot. And if you think about it, who was it that was our savior? Was it not the Logos? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And uh, so you think about the imagery of, of a word or something that's spoken and how powerful that can be, how saving that can be, uh, be because it, it, it is communicating the mind of God. It's communicating in a very real way, a very real power. And, uh, well, there we have it. Um, I think it's, it's part of what makes it so um, serious in God's book, why he puts the liar side by side with the murderer. Why it is that truth 
and and uh, versus lying, life versus death. That Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Satan was a liar from the beginning. And why is it the lying and murder are put uh, side by side more often than not throughout the scriptures? To us, that makes no sense. We want to think that, well, lying is no big deal, murder is a big deal. You know, you go to prison for murder, uh, the, the death penalty for murder. Uh, we will execute murderers in the state of Texas. Uh, well, we don't execute liars in the state of Texas. <laughs> right? There wouldn't be any politicians left if we, if we executed murderers or liars in the state of Texas. But this tandem of, of lying and murder, and it, and it is reflective, obviously, of the adversary, of, the, of our uh, father the devil and the, and the aspects there. So, but think about the seriousness of it. God has blessed us in His image with communication, verbal communication, that we can put into words thinking, and we have that, that, uh, that blessing, even as God Himself has done. So we'll discuss that as well. And then the actions or the deeds in verse 7. Uh, because there's the wicked who are overthrown and are no more. They do no more. They have no more action. There's nothing left for them to do. But the house of the righteous will stand. And in terms of their activity and in terms of their legacy and what they leave behind and what, what endures to the next generation and beyond, there are actions that, are, that we can think of in terms of verse 7. So thought, word, and deed are all manifest in the contrast of the righteous and the wicked. Now, uh, really the bulk of what I want to spend the sub-points on with A, B, and C is what we're dealing with here in verse 5 is the thinking. If we shape the thinking correctly, then the words will follow, the deeds will follow. It's as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. So we want to highlight, at least I want to highlight in the notes, uh, the thinking component here. So subpoint A, thoughts and counsels. Thoughts and counsels. Both of these terms, and we're going to put these together, they are together in the verse in, in parallel, putting these terms together in tandem will help us to, I think, understand uh, what we're dealing with. Thoughts and counsels speak to systematic planning and course charting. That's what we're talking about. All right, Thinking takes work. Counsels take work. And, and these expressions, the way that they're used in parallel, we want to understand we're talking about a systematic planning and course charting, right? If you're going to chart a course. Now you may get off course at some point, but the fact that you've got a course charted means that even if you are off course, you know how to get back. You know how to get back on course. You know where the ultimate destination is. Uh, lots of benefits, of course, to systematic planning and course charting. And so what we want to do then is we want to adjust our thinking to God's thinking. Adjusting our thoughts and counsels to God's righteousness is then going to unfold the corresponding words and deeds. It will unfold the corresponding words and deeds. Right thinking produces right speaking, produces right actions. It's inescapable. So if we adjust our thoughts and counsels to His righteousness, uh, the thoughts of the righteous are just. That's what we want to go with. The words and the deeds will follow. And it should be just as simple as that. All right? So, what are we dealing with with the thinking? What are the details then? What's the fine print? We want to be like the, 
well, we don't want to be like the, the, the Pharisee, but we, it's still legitimate to ask the question, right? He wanted to know, well, who's my neighbor, okay? And, and I think he wanted to know that so he could weasel out of it and not have to, not have to do what, what needed to be done. We want to know, though, on a legitimate basis, um, what kind of thinking? What is this about? What kind of plan? What kind of course do we need to chart? Um, should, we, should we think long-term or should we just live day by day and let God work out the details? All right, He is the one with the eternal plan anyway from Alpha to Omega, so why don't I just follow His plan? Why do I need to chart a course? All right, So some of these I think are, are aspects we should explore because there is extremes and misapplications if we don't. And I think um, there are principles to apply, but those principles can then be abused when they're misapplied. See, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the thinking. Hello? I'm experimenting with a new... Here we go. Thoughts. Okay? Lots of different ways we can express thought in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But here, in this passage anyway... Uh, when we talk about the, and it's a, it's a mouthful, machashava. Everybody want to say that together? Machashava. Okay. That's, that's not too bad. Machashava. All right. Put the accent on the final va. Machashava. Anyway, um, the verb is the middle three letters. I'm going to experiment with something else too while I'm at it. This is kind of fun. Let's do this. Is that showing up? It is. All right. So these middle three letters right here are your ver- is your verb. We tacked an M on the front of it. We tacked an H on the end of it. We've got a prefix. We've got a suffix. But every Hebrew word is basically three letters anyway, and, uh, and that's what we're dealing with. So the middle verb, the chashav, is what we're dealing with. And then the... Uh, the things we add to it to make the noun. All right, machashavah. 56 uses in the Bible, so in the Old Testament. So that's quite a few. And we got a, a fair number to look at. I didn't put all of them on the screen, but enough that we get the sense for it so that we see that it's not accidental. How do I turn this off? All right, let's turn that off. All right. It's not accidental. It, uh, it, it, that thinking doesn't happen by itself, thinking doesn't happen accidentally, that we need to be engaged in the verb, we need to be engaged in the activity. It speaks to thoughts, plans, schemes, or designs. Thoughts, plans, schemes, or designs. And this is something that's generated by the activity. And uh, if, if we don't get it today, then we got some other things coming up in Philippians that'll help reinforce it. Because Philippians is a book about thinking, right? It's a book about attitudes. How do you have an attitude? How do you have a thought? And where do you keep your thought once you've had it? (laughs) Do you ever let it go? Do you hold on to it for a while? Um, Do you ever run out of space for your thoughts? All right. Um, Have you lost your your thoughts at some point? You, You had a thought a moment ago. Where did you put it? And so this is what we speak to, okay? We speak to things that didn't exist until you did it, until you thought it, until you had... So we have a thinking activity, and we go through a thinking activity, and we go through it again and again and again. Maybe we go over and over, see? And the more we go over and over, what happens? The plan gets more firm, doesn't it? It becomes more real. It becomes more uh, fixed in our mind because we've rehearsed it. 
Maybe it's a song. We're learning lyrics or whatever it is. We're thinking again and again and again. And every time we think, we're, we're recreating that thought and we do it frequently enough and then there it is. So whether it's a thought or a plan or a scheme or a design, this is what we're dealing with. And context, I think, goes a long way to, to spelling out maybe some of the shades of how we should render it in English. Uh, whereas I don't know in Hebrew it's really necessary to, to have such nuance, but context there too will, uh, will make these things very clear for us. So here's a sample, and uh, not, to, not to read all 56 of them, but I gave a, a significant chunk there. Um, Genesis 6-5. When you think Genesis 6, what's the first thing you think of? The flood, yeah, that's exact, exactly. And uh, 6, 7, and 8 is the flood. And um, so if, is, there, is there thinking in, in Genesis 6? Yeah. And it's not good thinking. It's bad thinking. So Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every, not a lot, not many, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <laughs> That's a powerful verse, all right? We could stop and teach that for an entire hour. But you'll notice, look at the absolute expressions that are there. How many uh, adverbs and prepositions and terms do we have here that express absolute, right? So he saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Well, how great is great? It goes on to explain, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's a trinity of absolute expressions there. Every, only, continually. Every, only, continually. And so, you know, for the liberals that want to just kind of blow this off as, you know, it's poetry or, well, it's, it's just uh, hyperbole or the you know, ancient authors, they just they exaggerate to make the point. Well, yeah, that, that, that does happen. Hyperbole does exist, but it's not nearly as common as, as people make it out to be. There's also the blunt statement of, of reality, and that's what we see here. Very clearly said three times over, only, uh, every, only, continually. All right? And uh, I think if he, if he makes the redundant, repetitive, and... and uh, I need a third term for redundant and repetitive. If, if, if he reinforces it three different times, he's doing that for a reason. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it's systematic. Uh, there's thoughts, there's plans, there's schemes, there's designs. I like the way this verse also, by the way, uh, shows you the intent behind the thinking. What's behind thinking? No, no. Behind thinking. Okay, behind thinking. Because, um, so we say action, what's behind action is thinking. Well, what's behind thinking? What, what is the, the fundamental uh, foundation of thinking? It's, it's intent. It's attitude. Okay? And attitude is what shapes intent. And we discussed this when we talked about the attitudinal responsibilities that we have. It was a big part of uh, 2 Corinthians. We studied in 2 Corinthians there were some attitudinal issues there in the thinking. We're to, we're, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Remember that? And so as a man has purposed in his heart, that's how we're supposed to give. And so we, we see that, yes, thinking is behind our words, is behind our deeds, but there's something even behind our thinking, and that's our attitude. That's why attitudinally we need to have those intents 
the intentions need to be shaped. When, when we read in Hebrews that the Word of God is alive and powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. You've heard that, heard that verse before? Okay. And what is it? It is a discerner or critical judge of the thoughts and the intents. That's right, because those intentions are behind the thinking. So there's, there's an attitudinal foundation that's even uh, logically prior to thinking when it comes to that. And if, we, if you've got a poor attitude, let me tell you, it's going to shape your thinking. Of course it's going to shape your thinking. All right? Question on that? Pride, Pride is an attitude. And humility is an attitude. Now that's fundamentally, when we, t- when we studied the attitudes there, it's, it's pride and, and, and humility. And if you're humble, that's the attitude that can learn. That's the attitude that's teachable. And the humble attitude is the one that's going to be thinking the righteous thoughts of, uh, of God. All right. Well, we don't have to look at the rest of these then. Doug figured it all out. <laughs> all right, well, let's look at Exodus anyway. Exodus 35. There's some verses there. Yeah, we want, we want the Word of God to shape our thinking. And, it, and that happens, but it also shapes our attitudes. And as we're transformed by the renewing of your mind, that includes the, the conscious thinking and the subconscious attitudes. That includes uh, a number of things there that the Word of God is able to shape. Same thing with conformity. When, we, when you don't let the Word of God shape your thinking, then the world will do so. And the conformity to the to this, to this age, the conformity to this world is not just on thinking, it's, it's attitudinal. It, it's underneath the thinking. And so that's what makes this, I think, so, uh, so vital. All right, Exodus 35, verse 32. Um, of course, this is in the stretch where the tabernacle is getting built. And, um, and this, verse 30 begins the paragraph, Moses said to the sons of Israel, see, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all craftsmanship. And so here's a guy that's, that's good with tools, right? And not only is he good with tools, but then he gets divine wisdom infused into him, so he's even better with tools. And, and now uh, he's got a, a skill. And the same word for wisdom is the same word for skill. And, and uh, in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and in all craftsmanship. And what does that really take? You know, this is a guy that not only can follow instructions and, and use a kit, here's a guy that can think with his own creativity and without a kit, with just raw materials and tools, he can envision and, and get something built and get something designed and get something done. In a in a in just a, a way that boggles my mind. I'm not equipped to do that. But here's a guy that is, and a guy. If you think about God infusing all that wisdom into Solomon and how to be a king and how to be a teacher and how to lead his people, this is what Bezalel is getting. All of that divine wisdom and skill for building stuff, for craftsmanship. And then you'll notice in verse 32, to make designs, and that's our word. To, to construct, to manufacture, to create, to make machashava, to make designs for working in gold and in silver and in bronze. And so who makes designs? See? And, and it's the same thing. Sharon does stuff, and her mom taught her, and her mom does stuff. And, and, and 
you know, if you have a pattern, if you're going to make a dress or you're going to sew something and you're using a pattern or uh, my mother-in-law says, well, you know, yeah, you can use a pattern or make one yourself. <laughs> you know, wow, how do you make a pattern? How do you think in that way? How does your mind even visualize a pattern like that whereby you got fabric and stuff's going to get sewn and folded and hems and, you know, I don't even know what. But that's what my mother-in-law does. That's what my wife does. And uh, that kind of plan or this blueprint or pattern, okay, or design in Hebrew is a macha shava. Okay, that's what we're talking about. And so when we talk about the, the blueprints of, a, of the righteous, the patterns of the righteous, the plans of the righteous, we're talking about that systematic, schematic thinking whereby we're not, it's not just the activity of, of sitting around thinking all the time, but it's the, the results of that thinking, the plans that have been put into place, the designs, the, the, uh, the ideas that are now becoming reality because it's in place. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about. And it's, 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 it's a beautiful thing that we have capacity to do. Animals don't have this capacity. They have a, an instinctive, there's limited problem solving in the sense of an instinctive nature that animals can think and they can, uh, they can, you know, problem solve and work certain things out, but not in the schematic, systematic, comprehensive planning that we have been invested with in the image of God. It is a part of our responsibility in humanity to think and to put these plans together. And to then improve upon those plans when these don't turn out so well. <laughs> we learn better for next time. And we, we adjust some, uh, we do some fine-tuning or maybe we throw the whole thing out and start over. But we, uh, we have the capacity to learn by experience intellectually, not just through, like I say, an animalistic, instinctive pain stimulus. All right. So that's uh, verse 32. Same chapter now, verse 33. And in the cutting of stones... For the settings and the carving of wood, so as to perform in every, and our word here is inventive, every inventive work. It's the idea that we've put some thought into this and it's, it's materialized now in a systematic way. That's what we're looking at there. And then verse uh, 35 also has the Machav Shavah expression. Uh, verse 34 says, he also put in his heart to teach. Wow, you got all the skill in the world, but you're not hogging it. You're sharing it. And he's able to, to get a couple of apprentices or deputies. Uh, both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. And he has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer. That's our expression, uh, maker of design. I think it's used twice in verse 35. A designer and an embroiderer in blue and in purple and scarlet material and fine linen uh, uh, and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of designs. And so whatever your material is, there's a different skill set for each one, but he has all of them. He's, he's, he's marvelous in, in all, these, uh, all these realms. All right. So a couple of earthly illustrations there. Uh, over to First Chronicles 28.9. First Chronicles. Whoever reads Chronicles. Chronicles 
28 and verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, here's uh, David getting ready to hand the kingdom off, and uh, his words of wisdom from a father to a son. See, he already had wisdom before God gave him even more wisdom. But as, and he got it from his father David. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. That's what we're dealing with. The intents of the thoughts. And as you put all these things together, you put all these things together. And it's interesting, sometimes we're not quite sure where our thinking is going to take us, but we, we kind of know the direction it's going because of the intent, because of the heart attitude, because of the, the underlying attitude that shapes the thinking. And so even while the plans are being formulated, we still know the outcome because we know that the intent is to serve Him. The intent is to glorify Jesus Christ. The intent is to humbly walk with the Lord. And so while we're thinking, while we're planning, while we're, while we're serving Him, um, that's, that's where He's taking us. And so uh, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek Him, He will let you find Him. But if you forsake Him, He will reject you forever. And there's, uh, I mean, forget being king, just any, any son needs that kind of wisdom for uh, leaving father and mother and stepping into the next generation and taking on the responsibilities as a husband and a father and um, all the, the uh, responsibilities any man has in his generation. All right, so that's First uh, Chronicles. How about Second Chronicles, twenty six fifteen? I almost took this one out, but I, I like it so much. Second Chronicles twenty six fifteen. Again, I think it's in a construction context or in a, in a material context. Oh no, no, it's in the military context. That's right. And uh, some of the greatness here of King Uzziah. Uzziah was a great king. All right, had an ugly ending, but um, but, and that's you know divine discipline and and so forth. But he was a believer and he was righteous and he did well. And I think after Solomon, in terms of wisdom, it's interesting. So in Second Chronicles twenty six fifteen, um, when you see his achievements here and in the victory that he had in war, the. Um, Man, do I read the whole chapter? No, I don't read the whole chapter. Verse 9. Um, okay, so the Ammonites, we'll be seeing them on Sunday in, uh, in Jeremiah. Uh, the Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah. His fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, at the corner buttress, and, for, and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns. For he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions, according to the number of their muster. And so we see the wisdom that was applied here as well, the logistics, the food, the administrative divisions. Uh, according to the number of their muster prepared by Jeel, the scribe, and Messiah, the official, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. And so you see he brings uh, 
wisdom and skill to the, uh, to the order of battle. The total number of the heads of the households of valiant warriors was 2,600. Uh, of course, anytime there's numbers, there's manuscript issues. Under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. And, and it's, I think the English is awkward. But the valiant warriors of 2,600 forms your cadre of officer command structure and then the, the, uh, the standing army of 307,500. Anyway, uh, they could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. And if you're going to have an army, you want a powerful army, don't you? <laughs> you know, the one that you don't want to use, but if you have to use it, you better have the best one available. Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. In other words, he equipped them. He gave them all the equipment necessary to do the job. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war. And here's our expression. Invented by skillful man. These are the plans and the schematics and the, the comprehensive thinking that went into this. Invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. And so, you know, whether you're talking about the catapults or the, the trebuchets, I hate using French words, or um, other, other uh, engines of war, okay? He invented a lot of this stuff. And uh, hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until uh, until he was strong. Anyway, it's a good illustration, all right? And when, if you're ever talking to, you know, a liberal or somebody that wants to end the arms race or somebody that wants to, you know, visualize world peace and, and try to stop uh, people from inventing the next great weapon, um, forget it. Humans have been doing it since forever. And humans will always keep doing it. It's part of being human. And if we stop, the other guy's not going to stop. You know, we don't want them to invent something. The terrorists aren't going to stop inventing different ways to kill us. We need to keep inventing different ways to catch them, different ways to stop them. All right, because uh, this is the nature of being human, and this is the, 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 the thinking that, that uh, we are told to harness. And we want to harness this thinking for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's, it's so sad to me when I see believers with such a, a mind and a capacity for thinking and a wisdom, and yet they're not harnessing it for the Lord. And how many atheist unbelievers are brilliant, genius-level mentalities, and yet um, they're not harnessing any of that for the Lord, and Satan sure makes use of it for, uh, for what the world's promoting. Anyway, it's sad. So that's Second Chronicles 26.15. Uh, some poetic uses starting in Psalm 33. Psalm 33 and uh, verses 10 and 11. We can understand this. It's interesting because um, sometimes these are used in parallel with the next term we're going to see, the counsels. We have thoughts and we have counsels. We have two thinking verbs here in, in, in verse 5. And a lot of these verses will use both terms, such as right here. So Psalm 33.10, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. And so we get, uh, we get both of the terms that we're looking at today in Proverbs 12. They show up here. 
Um, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. And so if we ever find that our plan is at odds with His plan, uh, we need to dump our plan. <laughs> okay, We need to say, not our will but thine be done. We need to realize that for whatever reason, okay, if our heart was in the right place, then it's easy to do. Uh, then we could dump the plan or make the adjustments necessary because our heart was in the right place. The attitude was there. It's not difficult to dump a human plan if the heart was in the right place. Um, I, I, you know, David had a plan to build the temple. And God said no. Said, uh, your son Solomon is going to build the temple, not you. You're a man of war and I don't want, with the blood on your hands, I don't want you touching this temple. Your son is going to be the king of peace. He will build this temple. Okay? And, and it's a beautiful picture because between David and Solomon we have two types of Christ that, are, that foreshadow the tribulation where the, the, he comes in victory and war and defeats evil and then peace in the, in the millennium, right? But, um, so together David and Solomon are able to paint that picture but God wouldn't let David build the temple because of the, of the war and, and the design was for Solomon to, to build the temple. And, uh, but his heart was in the right place. The intent was good. The attitude behind the thinking was there was nothing wrong with the attitude. God praises him for that attitude. And so the thinking, it was wrong thinking, but it wasn't David's fault for it being wrong thinking. He just didn't have all the information. We're limited, we're finite in our understanding. And so we think based on what we know, and then when we learn more, we we change our thinking. Oh, I didn't have that information. Oh, Solomon's going to build. Okay, great. And David had the humility to adjust his plan to God's plan. And said, okay, I'm not going to build the temple, but I'm going to stockpile the the building supplies. I'm going to finance it. I'm going to bankroll it. I'm going to lay up the treasures to to pay for it. I'm going to form a friendship with Hiram, king of Tyre, so that my son can then contract for the cedar that needs to be delivered. And, And David very quickly adjusted his whole plan to be in conformity with God's plan. And that's, that's the example all of us need to be following. So um, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. And that's, uh, that just says it all right there. All right. And then in Proverbs, uh, before we even reach 12.5, we had the term once before in Proverbs 6.18. I don't think we stressed it to any extent at least I don't recall in teaching through Proverbs 6 that I made a great big deal of this, but of all the things that God hates, remember this? Six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to Him. Do you remember what those seven were? I don't. Did you memorize them? All right. You slept since then? Okay. Well, here they are. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and this is the one where our term comes in, a heart that devises wicked plans. A heart that devises wicked plans. You know, he did not give you the capacity of inventiveness so that you could craft your next sin, so that you could craft your next rebellion against his against his will. And um, there it is. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Those are the things which God hates. All right, uh, Proverbs 12.5, we can skip over. That's our verse today. We've already read it. Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15. 
22 and 26. Without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. And here's a principle of wisdom and a, a, a proverb that applies in any realm of life, really. Um, you know, are you, are you smarter than, than 100 people? <laughs> okay. Uh, would you benefit if you got some consultation in there, if you got some extra expertise and bring in some other people that know things you don't know? Of course that helps. Absolutely that helps. And uh, without it, if, you, if, if your entire plan is shaped on everything you know and nothing beyond what you know, you may, you may be frustrated in that regard. But with many counselors, they succeed. And we get that. Then to verse 26, evil plans are an abomination to the Lord, but pleasant words are pure. And uh, when you're tracking all the things that are an abomination, this, uh, this makes the list. The evil plans. Chapter 16 and verse 3. Um, well, verse 1, it's a different term, but it's in parallel. Uh, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Yeah, that's why conscience sometimes lets you down because uh, you know you make up your mind what you want to do anyway, and yeah, I'm okay with that. And then uh, God comes along with His scales and says, "Wait a minute, let's reshape your conscience according to uh, Scripture." Verse three: Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. And so I hope that that the full impact of this is hitting us. God expects us to plan. Yes, he has the Alpha and Omega plan. He's not expecting us to plan that. But a subset of that, within where we are and what we're doing, we should be shaping plans. We should have plans for our families, plans for our marriage, plans for our children, plans for our flock, plans for our ministry. We should have plans. And uh, in, in near term, long term, we should be ready to adjust ours when he highlights, no, that's kind of a dumb idea, <laughs> okay? Um, but your heart's in the right place, so here, how about this instead? Okay? Plans, ideas, dreams. See, I've, I've shared with my deacons, and they're praying with me right now. I would love to have student housing for, uh, for men that are preparing to be pastors, uh, for their wives, for their family, for believers that are preparing for ministry, not just pastors, evangelists, they, uh, for those that are that are on in the in the training ministry that want to pursue this, how much better would Dan's training have been if we if he hadn't been bouncing around in eight different residences over over those years? See, or Cliff, or well, Cliff had a place, or or uh, B three, or, or so forth. If they're not working full time to put food on the table, and the pattern is there. Um, it's in Scripture. When he called the disciples to say, um, you know, come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. They left their boats, they left their nets, they left their father, they left their servants, they, they left their commercial fishing business, and they followed him. And they, they didn't leave secular work to go be pastors, they left their secular work to go be students, to be disciples. And we've gotten away from that. And in the 20th century, it was the pattern that, that uh, you know, you're, you're working yourself or you're, getting, you're working through school and you're working through grad school and you're working through seminary. And then finally, eight years later, you get to be a pastor after you're trained 
And now you can start drawing a paycheck? Wait a minute. How much debt do you have stacked up now? Whereas Jesus put them on staff. They were, they were supported as disciples, as students. They weren't fishermen. And so uh, anyway, that's on my heart. That was on, uh, that's, the, that's how they operate in Ukraine. Much of what I want to emulate is what's already on the ground there in, in uh, Jim Meyer's ministry in Ukraine. Those students are full-time students living in apartments that the school provides for them with a stipend every month to buy groceries with. Anyway, so I've shared my dreams and I've shared my plans and uh, with the Lord in prayer, with my deacons, with some folks uh, praying about it. If, we've, if the Lord was to open a door to find something, then uh, we want to pray about that. And I'm not, I don't dare tell the Lord that He can't afford it because I saw what He did with this place, <laughs> right? I saw how He provided for this place. All right, so anyway, uh, commit your works to the Lord, your plans will be established. We're here to serve Him, and, and our plans are going to be established because we're being obedient to His plan. And that's, uh, that's that. All right, so that's Proverbs 16. Over to Proverbs 19, 1921. 1921. Was that a good year? 1921? I don't remember. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. You know, maybe we come up with a thousand harebrained schemes and 500 of them aren't quite so harebrained and 300 of them are feasible and 200 of them are smart and 100 of them glorify Christ and 10 of them, you know, you see what I'm saying? But eventually we get down to the one that the Father says, this is the one that gives the maximum glory for Jesus Christ. This is the one that, that He decreed before the foundation of the world. This is the one that He's going to actualize in the outworking of our faith day by day. And so it's a beautiful thing, and we, uh, we're able to watch it happen. Uh, chapter 20 and verse 18. Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. You know, Jesus spoke about this too. He says, There's not, what king is there that doesn't uh, estimate his, uh, his military capacity? And uh, before engaging in a losing war, you decide discretion is the better part of valor here. Let's sue for peace. <laughs> we can't win this war. Let's, uh, let's find out what terms we need to, to not fight a war we cannot win. And, and a king's got to be smart to do that. Or you, if you're going to build a tower, make sure you're going to finish the tower. Don't start a tower and have everybody laughing at you for an unfinished tower. And uh, Jesus spoke to this. This is basic. This is fundamental. This is wisdom. And without it, see, I think the the uh, I think it's a misapplication to just say, "Well, God's the one with the plan. I'm just going to live day by day and not think about it." Well, hello, He told you to think about it. He commanded you to think about it. You're expected to think about it. God doesn't want unthinking, mindless robots. God wants thinking fellow workers, and we should be thinking. We should be developing His thinking. It pleases Him when we think. All right, so was that 2018 when I just read? Yeah, prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. Chapter 21 and verse 5. The plans of the diligent leave sure, lead surely to an advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. And there it is. The plans of the diligent. Wow, that, that takes work. <laughs> yeah, it does. That does, absolutely it does. 
That's why a business owner is, is the one that's putting in 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And, and the, the employee is the one that goes home at 5 o'clock and doesn't think about it again until the next day. And uh, meanwhile, the owner is the one that's losing sleep and tossing and turning and, and uh, you know, uh, diligent with his plans. He's got to think about it comprehensively. Anyway, that's uh, 21.5. Uh, some others, and, and these are just simply because you know them. You know them already. You just didn't know that what the Hebrew word was behind it. Um, Isaiah 55. When you think Isaiah 55, what do you think? First thing that comes to your mind with Isaiah 55. Thoughts, yeah. My thoughts are not your thoughts as the heavens are higher than the earth. Okay? And that's our vocabulary today. That's our macha. I'm going to say it wrong. Mechashavah. Okay? Mechashavah. All right, thoughts. It's easier in English. Isaiah 55. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his mechashavah, his thoughts. I guess it'd be mechashavuth, is the plural of mechashavah. And let him return to the Lord. You see that? If your thinking is different from God's thinking, if your plans are different from God's plans, dump them. Dump them and run home. Run to your father. You know, wake up with the pigs and the, and the harlots and whatever else the prodigal said, wait a minute, what am I doing here? I need to get back to my father's house. And he did. So forsake your way, forsake your thoughts, return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my machashavoth are not your machashavoth, declares Yahweh, declares the Lord. My thoughts are not your thoughts. See, it's not just the thing, the activity of thinking, but it's the comprehensive, systematic, thought-out plan, scheme, design, blueprints. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my machashavoth higher than your machashavoth. All right? So um, the, the answer is not to, to stop thinking. The answer is to adjust our thinking to His. We are to have thoughts, okay? But make sure they're adjusted to His thoughts. And then Jeremiah 29, 11, everybody quotes it as if it applies to them. It's a plan for Israel. Our application is secondarily, okay? I'm not mocking people for quoting it, but they, they quote it as if it was written to them. And our application is secondary, all right? Just understand, that's all I'm saying. It's a secondary application. For I know the plans I have for you, right? Declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Beautiful verse, lovely verse, nice scripture memory verse. It's not written to you. It's written to Jerusalem on the eve of their captivity. And they're going to have a 70-year captivity. And they're going to be restored from their captivity. And the application is theirs. When we claim it, we claim it on a secondarily on, a, on an indirect basis. Because obviously God has a plan for our life, yes. And, uh, his, but is it for calamity or is it for welfare? What's it for? It might be for calamity. What if it is for calamity? Am I still okay with that? 
if it's only temporal. Well, you know, if, if my plans are for, for uh, calamity, am I still okay for that? What if I don't have a future? What if I don't have a hope? I have an eternal future, I have an eternal hope. See, but I have to, if I'm going to claim this as a verse, I, I need to make sure that I do so in a church age context in the angelic conflict with the right application, not, not, uh, not a misapplication of a, of a Jewish prophecy, of a Jewish promise for Israel's application. All right. Because then it goes on to say, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. If you seek me and find me, when you search for me with your whole heart, I will be found by you. Again, this is to Israel coming back from their captivity. We can draw a secondary application, but we've got to be careful. Otherwise we can get into prosperity things and some foolishness and, and all of that. Anyway, we've known the verse for years and years. We just haven't known the vocabulary then for... Uh, Okay. The second term we've got to deal with is this term on councils. And uh, another mouthful. It doesn't have it doesn't prefix an M, it prefix a T. And so uh it's Tahbula. Tahbula. And uh, the middle three uh letters are your verb. Your your chavel. Okay. And uh, with chavel, we're speaking about uh, pulling a rope. Okay? You ever think about pulling a rope? <laughs> um, ever have anybody pull your chain? You know what I'm talking about? It probably wasn't a good thing, was it? No, okay. You ever have anybody pull strings? Did that work out for you? Sometimes, sometimes not. But they were trying to do something when they were pulling a string, weren't they? They were trying to change a circumstance when they were pulling strings. They were trying to make something happen when they were pulling strings. Same thing if we're pulling ropes. If we're pulling ropes um, on, a, on, a, um, on a ship, what happens when you pull a rope? You're unfurling a sail or you're uh, folding a sail or you're, you're moving the tiller or you're changing the keel. It's a nautical term. And anytime you're pulling a rope... You're steering a ship. Ships steer with ropes being pulled. Anyway, that's the, uh, that's the uh, metaphor. That's the imagery behind the verb. It works in Hebrew, it works in Greek, it works in English. If I'm pulling your leg, <laughs> or if I'm pulling your chain, or I'm pulling something, okay? If I'm pulling strings. We have similar idioms in English. And, and the metaphor speaks to um, a, a a manipulation of whatever sort, verbal and, and thinking, that is affecting a change. It's affecting a change, and so it speaks of a counselor. It speaks of a of a of a, of a pilot or a guide. It speaks of somebody that's giving direction. And uh, and so I'm coming alongside, and I'm pulling a, a particular direction. I'm giving guidance. I'm giving direction. That's what counsel is. You don't have to follow it. <laughs> okay? you, can, you can snap the rope and go do your own thing. But you've been counseled because the rope has been pulled because there's been a, a guidance that has been applied. And so that's what Tachbulah speaks of. And there's only six. It's not, it's not as common as, as the, uh, the first term. We had 56 uses. There's only six uses of tachbulah in the Old Testament, and most of them are repeats. So Job 37, 12, 
Proverbs 1, 5, 11, 14, those are repeats from the, the verses we just looked at. Didn't we? Maybe not. Oh, no, 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 they're not repeats. Some of them are, some of them are not. I, I used the asterisks for the Septuagint use. That's what I did. Anyway, Job 37, 12, Proverbs 1, 5, Proverbs 11, 14, Proverbs 12, 5, 20, 18, 24, 6, all those in Proverbs. Uh, also, um, we'll have to talk about the spiritual gift of, of administration that we talked about in, in basic doctrinal studies because it was the same vocabulary, the same language. Somebody that is skilled to pilot a, uh, a ship, to pilot a boat into uh, a rocky harbor, for example, is a ship pilot. And so we'll deal with that. I'm just, I'm out of time. I could try to race through this in a minute and wouldn't do it justice. So let's save this for next week. We'll come back to this next week and then we'll be ready to move on to verse 8, verses 9 through 11. There's more uh, here in Proverbs 12. Verse 8 says, A man will be praised according to his insight, but one of perverse mind will be despised. And a nice follow-up, really, to the thinking study from verse 5 is uh, how... um, what is the reflection upon our thinking by those around us in verse 8? And then 9 through 11 will handle as a unit as well. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. We got, we'll learn about reputations in the community. <laughs> what do people think of you? It doesn't matter. And uh, different aspects there. And then we finally get the doctrine of pets. No, we don't. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. Why do we have animals? Well, obviously, that's God's talking about pets and how I treat Fifi or Fluffy or Spike or whatever, our dogs and our cats and our little critters. Okay? So stay tuned. I'll make everybody mad as we... uh, as we talk about it. All right. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Some good things coming up. We're eager to learn. We're eager to see what the Scripture says, Father. And, uh, <laughs> and we, uh, we just thank you for being so faithful. You touch every aspect of life, how we think, how we speak, the things we do, um, every aspect of life, even our pets, even our animals. What, uh, there's, there's wisdom application there as well. So, Father, thank you for bringing the Word of God alive and making it clear to each one of us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Uh-huh. Oh, Dan 